Hey guys, welcome to the Google Podcast. I am your host, Rob Watson, and today I'm speaking with Barry Taylor, who I could say stumbled upon um, after a recent trip down to Glastonbury, our Airbnb host. Um, the bedside table happened to have this guy's book. Um, I didn't quite get to the end of the book. I said to the host, I said, could I borrow this book and return it home? She says, yeah, sure you can. And she's like, oh, by the way, he just lives literally like two seconds down the road. That's where he lives and he's still alive. I didn't know if he's still alive because he was he's in his 90s and he was. And um, and she mentioned like, oh, he's still chatting on the internet. And that little light bulb went off in my head that it was an opportunity for me to have him on this podcast. Um, I was fascinated by his story. He's a, a, a gentleman who's got such a rich life. He's could say he started his spiritual path in his later on in his life or in his 40s or um, things really kind of opened up for him. He's lived in Glastonbury. He's offered a lot of help and support to a lot of businesses. That's something that's interesting to me is because a lot of creative people, a lot of spiritual people could have ideas um, but can have challenges maybe getting them off the ground or sustaining them um, um, maybe have a bit of a, an issue around money and their relationship with that. He's come from a background of being a, an entrepreneur, a, a company director, having multiple companies. Uh, so was able to pass on and share that wisdom with a lot of people in Glastonbury and help to turn around a lot of those businesses, um, which has turned it into like a thriving um, community and spirit uh, of the town. So yeah, before I dive into the episode today, if you appreciate this, what I'm doing and you can, you know, you can subscribe to the channel. That's great. You can subscribe to the newsletter so you don't miss any episodes. And also, if you're feeling pretty generous, you can also support me um, through my Patreon page for as little as the price of a cup of coffee each month. You can support me and what I'm doing to speak with good people who are doing good things around the world. Um, and Barry is definitely one of those because he's done a lot of good and he continues to do a lot of good. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation um, and how rich it was and how much depth it was. Um, so anyway, without further ado, um, let's get into today's episode. Well, one thing I was really interested in is that like you've had such a, a fascinating and rich life. Um, I suppose maybe because you're in Glastonbury now, it'd be really nice to hear, because we've gone back to Glastonbury pretty much every year now for the past six or seven years. We feel drawn back every year just to spend some time in the place. What is it that, what drew you to Glastonbury in the first place? That is a very long story. I will... Uh, I will endeavor to encapsulate it swiftly. Uh, I had an, I was running a lot of businesses which I owned during the 1970s when there was the fuel crisis. And uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, we had lots of difficulties. I had to sell my one viable good business in order to wind up cleanly all the others. And after this, I sat in my little office at my home here in London. And I thought, I've had enough of all this. I think I'll go off and be a monk. And a clear voice said to me, that is a not a very practical idea. When you have children at school, you have people at university. Uh, no, if you will go where we would like you to go, and if you will do what we would like you to do, we will then care for you and all your family. I thought about this for one second and said, done. 
I will go exactly where you sent me. What is it you want me to do? They said, well, we wanted to go and see your friend, the village priest, and ask if we could help. So I went to see him, asked if I could polish the brass or mow the lawn. He said, no, uh, you can do something more useful. You can help me start the groups in the parish, A, and B, you can go and see a friend of mine who's in desperate trouble. So um, I agreed to do both. I went off to see the friend. Uh, he had a business, it doesn't really matter what it was, it was in trouble. Uh, I said, well, I can help you sort this out. And I started and literally there, he said, well, you could start by seeing one of my clients who's also in trouble. So I went to see this client and by the end of this first day, I had a job as a part-time managing director with a big company. So I had an income. It was an extraordinary business. Suddenly all my problems have been solved. So I said, my friends have honored their commitment. I will devote my life to them, which I've done ever since. Well, two days later, I found a book by someone called Tara Livingston about the A to Z of uh, psychic experience or some such thing. I quite liked what I saw and uh, on the back was her address in Glastonbury and I gave her a ring and she said, ah, I've been waiting to hear from you. Of course, I'd never seen her before, but that was very glad. I've been waiting to hear from you, come and see me went down to see her. She said, well, what are you interested in? I said, well, I'm absolutely fed up with the business world. I would like to develop my own spiritual awareness and work with others. I would quite like to be some sort of a spiritual healer. And she said, oh, for goodness sake, we've got hundreds of those. Do you know anything about business? I said, oh dear, 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 yes, I do please go and see my friend who's in desperate trouble. So off I went to see this particular friend who was in desperate trouble. And I took on responsibility to sort out her. She had a big business in a terrible mess. So I worked with her to sort it out. And I went down to Glastonbury one day a week. And um, well, I swiftly inherited a whole raft of clients. <laughs> and what, um, what I had unwittingly become was a business healer. I, I've been working for years on uh, my own spiritual awareness, reading and so on. But I suddenly realized that I could understand these people in Glastonbury with what they were trying to do but I was fluent with the accountants, solicitors, barristers, bankers, all the stuff they needed to make it work. And I could put their ideas into words acceptable to the materialistic providers of facilities. Full stop. Sounds fascinating. <laughs> it's quite a long story, really, yeah. I'm afraid. No, no, it is. Um, and just on that, because one thing that was appealing to me in the book is because you summed it up pretty much well there, but you, you did say something in particular that was interesting. Um, 
is because a lot of people in the creative industry or, you know, loads of ideas, you know, they, they're the ones that are coming up with the things that are changing the world in many ways. Yeah. But, but, you know, what sometimes, you know, they can either have loads of ideas, there's no organization, there's no structure. Um, and you mentioned something about like, a, I think it's a poverty mindset that maybe a lot of creatives might have. Um, maybe they don't understand the, the value that they offer, or maybe they think, money is like the root of all evil or those elements i just like to get your understanding on that in terms of that the way the challenges that creatives have around turning an idea into well, a business uh, what happens is uh, quite often creative people have a powerful intuitive inspiration they're not very fluent at working with this but it pours into them with the ideas that they want to create. Now they believe absolutely in allowing this energy to flow. And when you talk to them, they, they say, I just wanted to flow effortlessly uh, and I want uh, 10,000 pounds for you. And you say, well, in order to get 10,000 pounds, we have to have some sort of an outline plan. What are you trying to do? How will it become sustainable? And how is it going to survive until it is sustainable? They then nearly always say, I can't cope with that clunky nonsense. It will stop the flow. So this is where the skill is needed for the person I call the enabler. He has to be able to understand their inspiration, assess whether it is in fact realistic, spiritual or otherwise. And if it is realistic, this enabler has to put the inspired idea into words that are acceptable to the conventional world. He doesn't destroy the idea, he just interprets it. And because the enabler is fluent spiritually himself, as well as the material world, is open to allowing this original idea to change subtly as you go along. But the point is when you talk to a bank, he wants to know, right, you're going to borrow 100,000 from me, what's it secured on, how do you pay it back, where's the money come from? You, know, you have to give them some practical nuts and bolts. So the enabler's task is to allow the inspired one to uh, focus on, if you like, the next step. The next step is always structured. You know, do you need an office? Do you need staff? Um, so you hold the long-term plan, but you actually sort out the immediate details. I've got a little slogan, which I call, I must remember what it is. Yes, it's simplicity in concept, complexity in application, and tenacity of vision. Uh, so the absolutely vital thing is that you keep the end object with absolute clarity in your mind and you don't get lost in a welter of stuff about do we rent this, do we take that. I'm going to stop now because I, I get carried away when I talk about this subject. No, it's interesting to have that because I know for my own self speaking as well, and plenty of other people I speak to is, you know, you can get that excitement about an idea. You can 
get going with it. Um, you can sometimes have really big expectations, you know, you can, you know, hit hurdles in the way. One thing I've spoken, I've used a few people as examples in the past, like Walt Disney for one, I remember that he was turned down over 300 times for finance to actually set up, you know, the Disney, uh, Disneyland in, in Los Angeles, I think it was. Um, but he never gave up. He kind of persevered. And I think there's an element of that of just persevere. If you really believe in what you're doing, you get the right people behind you. Is that having that tenacity to, to, to see it through? And that's a great lesson of Glastonbury. You must, you must be able to access the, uh, some people call it the angel of Glastonbury, but there is an overlighting energy that cares about Glastonbury. You must be able to listen to that voice. It will tell you what needs doing, and you set about doing it. But the vital ingredient, you need absolute patience. Uh, it may take 20 years. And if you're not used to this, after, say, a couple of years, it's just plodding along and you think, oh, God, this is hopeless. But it, it, what you realize, if it's inspired, is that you have created the first stepping stone. Even though that stays like that for 10 years, it's the jumping off point for when the new energy arrives. So tenacity of purpose is the essential ingredient in spiritual work. Full stop. <laughs> I like it. Um, so you mentioned then briefly about Glastonbury and the, the, the spirit behind it, the energy behind it. Can you touch a bit more on that? What makes it such a special place for that? Obviously the Abbey seems to have been quite a, um, quite a beacon at one well, point. What you have to think of is that Glastonbury is an inspired place. It's been there forever. And uh, monks and uh, hermits flocked around the place. But in the, uh, in the sort of 900s of thousands, the monks of the abbey were drawn to Glastonbury. They didn't invent it, but they felt this energy and they began to build on that energy. And they focused it so well, the energy poured in, a town grew up around their, their abbey. Uh, candlestick makers, laundresses, and you know, the whole town grew up around the spiritual purpose of the abbey. So for a while, there was a real balance. The spiritual purpose served by the choir monks praying. The abbot was a highly practical businessman as well as a monk. And he was organizing farms, stud farms, fruit farms, orchards. They had 12 manors, all generating wealth. The abbey owned everything in the town. They owned every house, every building. They were the landlords of everything. So for a short time, Glastonbury was a powerhouse of spirituality, but it became corrupted as these things do. And it really died when in 1539 and remained really dormant until the early 19th century. And what it's now trying to do uh, it's not recreating the abbey, 
it's creating Glastonbury as a spiritual powerhouse of transformation, useful to people worldwide. But to do that, it needs spiritual inspiration and it needs to be a thriving town. And it needs something called unity in diversity. So it isn't all owned by the Ambers anymore. 101 individuals are running their own enterprises highly efficiently, but they are facets of the whole that is Glastonbury. And the problem in Glastonbury is not everybody can see that what they're doing is a facet of the greater whole. They think it's it. Chalice well is it, or oh, it doesn't, that's only an example. The Abbey thinks it's it, everybody thinks it's it, but they are facets of this greater whole. Full stop. Yeah. You shouldn't be talking to me because I get carried away with these things. Well, I'm, I'm interested in these things and I'm sure people that will be listening to it are as well, but to, you know, um, like uh, understanding that like how crucial your role was because the book that um, I believe it was, was it 1985 when you arrived in Glastonbury? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and the, the Tara Livingston was the key. I worked with her to start with. And the, the real key for me, she introduced me to Helene Kopian who owned uh, the Glastonbury Experience, which I don't know if you've seen, but she owned the buildings. And she had poured money into this and she was absolutely committed. Uh, but uh, she, the, the, it just wasn't working. She owed the bank hundreds of thousands of pounds on her personal overdraft. The bank was completely fed up with her and said, look, this cannot go on. And they said, you must sell the place. So that's when I met her. Helene and I were born on the same day of the same year. And she was an astrologer. <laughs> so you could imagine she thought there was something in it. Yeah. Anyway, we worked together, sorted the place out. And we reached, we, we, when we'd sorted it out, um, I'd set up a new company to look after it. Uh, it recognized all Helene's investment in loans. And uh, when we set it up, I said to the bank, we're not going to give any personal guarantees. We jointly own this new company. And the bank said, well, we insist on life policies on Mrs. Copyland. I said, okay, quite modest. Well, two years later, Helene Copyland died. Um, the life policy paid off all the borrowings. She and I had agreed to leave our shares to, we'd set up a trust called Glastonbury Trust. She left her shares to the trust in her will. My agreement with Helena is that I gifted my shares to the trust. So we had overnight the Glastonbury Trust owning all the properties of Glastonbury Experience, plus some other houses that Helene had owned with no borrowings at all and a substantial income um, and a trust dedicated to helping Glastonbury to flourish. A miracle really, but it was not a miracle in Glastonbury, but it wasn't really cleverness by myself or Helene. We were 
guided in everything we did. Full stop. Yeah, it's it is fascinating that, and, and you know, you say um, it's a miracle, but then it's not. Just to tell me, no. yeah, it's you know, you mentioned about guided um, and guidance because it can feel like a lot of us, or the way we're grown up and we're brought brought up, is that it's kind of everyone for themselves. You know, we're on this earth spinning around the sun in the middle of the galaxy, in the middle of nowhere. It's by chance that we've turned got this far and it looks like we're going to all destroy ourselves anyway in the next hundred years. So there's a lot of fear. Um, people have a lot of fear around death. Um, but then you talked about guidance um, and, you know, tapping into other realms. And I would imagine, I know from my own experience by doing that, you have, you can able to surrender more and to have more faith in life and that there's a higher order to things and from that higher order you're able to like you're saying listen out for signs and guidance and feel like you're you're being supported to feel like you're being held in many ways Um, but yeah i'd like to get your insight on that well there are a number of steps um you have to, first of all, accept that there is such a thing as a spiritual realm, which after all is quite difficult for people in this materialist paradigm. You accept it, you steep yourself in it by reading and courses and workshops, and gradually you interiorize. It isn't that you've got an objective Uh, learning, you have a subjecting knowing that there is a world of the spirit. And then you have to find your own way, we each had to find our own way, of accessing the beings that are to be found there. They find you actually, when you're ready, they find you, but you have to be able to recognize them. Then you have to be able to, remember they are ephemeral, spirits, intelligences, they don't have bodies. So you have to agree, how will I be able to meet you? And they will say, okay, well, I'll turn up as a monk or a Red Indian or Chinese, it doesn't matter. Something will be appropriate for you. So in my case, they are usually monks, Tibetans or... So you say, fine, now, where will I meet you? And they say, well, you need, you, you, I, we can't just float about in the cosmos. Meet me in my abbey. And I say, how do I get there? So together we work out a process for visualizing how I get to their abbey. I knock on the door, there they are to greet me. We walk in, sit down somewhere, and then we are together. But remember, this is, we're not talking about reality. We're talking about a device to access higher beings and they will cooperate with this for me they do anyway and then they become your friends and they my friends i have different friends working with each project but they prompt me into what they want me to do and what i do i sometimes say well i'm getting they say you must work out the practicalities we are not there you're there We're just telling you what we want. So sometimes it gets a bit muddled. What I do, I sit down with voice recognition software on my computer. And I say, I'm feeling a bit muddled. 
And then a voice says to me, fine, well, we'll tell you what we think you should be doing. And off we go. It all appears on my computer. Uh, I've explained that at some length, but the reason is that you can't do it unless you've been through all the earlier stages, if you're with me. You have to prepare yourself. You have to accept it. You have to have an inner belief. And then they can reach you. I'm sorry I talk so much, but no, you, no. You're, you're touching on things where my heart is residing. Well, that's good. You know, it's good to hear in more in depth. And, and at what point... Um, because obviously you've been on this earth a lot longer than myself. And at what, at what point did this kind of awaken? And you know that you spoke that one of your businesses, you were kind of at the, the end of your tether a little bit with some of the business world. But I understand that you were being a trained, you were a counsellor as well for quite a number yes, of years. Yeah, a, a marriage guidance counsellor. And I, I'd also worked with quite a few charities, um, even up to that point. Yes, and uh, the, the, it's really, now the marriage guidance counseling was pretty basic really. I mean, we had a few weekends and then we were thrown in with the clients. So we had to, <laughs> but it was a very good, I learned something tremendously important there that when you're with a client, whether it's a business client or a spiritual client, you relate to them on three levels. We verbally speak to each other. If we're in the room together, we can feel each other's presence. But even if we're not the room together, my higher self can access your higher self and we can communicate at, it, at that third level. So I learned that in my counseling, really. Wow. Now, so, that, uh, all these things I'm saying sound a bit strange, so you have to say I... <laughs> well, well, they sound... Yeah, they might say sound strange, um, and they might have sound strange to me 10 years ago. Um, but, yeah, I've become very much aware of the, the, the higher self. Could you touch on a little bit more, then, about the higher self? Yes. Um, well, I, I won't go into theosophy... Um, Anthroposophy, uh, Hermetica, all the great teachings teach of the various levels of the human being. So the incarnate human being has a physical body, an emotional body, uh, it has the spiritual energy, but the key thing is it has a mind in two parts. It has the lower mind that works in the world and it has the higher mind that is accessing the world of the spirit. So the, 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 the task here is to live in the, practically in the spiritual world, to learn what you can there, but to be fluent in your own higher mind so that you can work with your friends who live up there uh, and endeavor to do something useful in the world to help them. You have to remember that the higher levels of consciousness have a concept for what they're trying to do with the world, how they're trying to help people grow in awareness. And uh, 
if we can, we have a responsibility to listen and to try and serve as best we can what they're trying to do. So that's what the higher mind is simply the way you contact. It's you. It's the bit of you that's eternal. You know, when you die, that, that whizzes off and does something else. And we, we should have a little um, subset here. All this um, is, is a personal point of view, unprovable in any intellectual way, and it can only be experienced. It cannot be learned through books. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So do you feel at the moment that we're at this, it feels like we're at this crossroads or there's numerous yeah. roads that we could be going down for humanity and the way that we're living or the way the world is, we're at that point where, well, you only have to look to turn on the news to, to see what it looks like from the external that everything's crumbling or, you know, everything's in disarray. But it feels as though the reason why more of us need to tap in and be connected with our higher selves is so we can make sure we make the transition. And if we're living all from the ego's perspective, from the physical mind, then it can be a bit more focused on what is in it for me. Um, where if we can, from the higher self mind, or we can be more service to others. And I always talk about this in this podcast, the more of us that can be more service to others, we're actually serving ourselves by serving others. But if we can focus on that and helping others in other way, whether it's like what you've done, you've been supporting people to set up businesses, which are offering a great service, spiritual service. It's helping the land. It's helping Glastonbury flourish. Um, so yeah. Um, what, what are your thoughts around that? Well, I think um, this is a time of wonderful opportunity. Uh, when, when all the old established ideas are crumbling and nothing looks sensible anymore, it is a time of opportunity. One of the most, to me, the most frustrating thing in my life is that for 50 years, I've had this complete peace of doing what I'm asked to do and being looked after everything to do with my relationships, my money, everything I need flows into my life without effort. Uh, okay, uh, being a human being, one has one's emotional dramas with people, <laughs> but fundamentally, there's an inner peace. Now, the frustrating thing is, this seems to be almost impossible to share with people. So I see people in desperate distress and I work with them and try and help them. But I think if they could just access their higher mind, they wouldn't be in desperate distress. They'd be solving it quietly. But there, there they are emoting and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, totally unnecessary. But it's immensely frustrating that you cannot teach it. They have to be, I think, people have to be awakened by an act of grace, they then make a decision whether they're going to respond or not. And most people, everybody gets this act of grace. Most people say, oh, poo, that's a lot of bloody nonsense. And a handful of people don't, and they find peace. But it, the tragedy is it's unteachable. 
Yeah. It's only you can enable other, you can help other people, but you cannot teach people. They won't believe you. Yeah. They so, have to come to their own inner need. So you mentioned that you can help people. In what ways could you give, would you help someone who is, you can maybe sense that they are open to these ideas yeah. Um, but they've maybe still got one foot in their old life and they're attempting to find that transition or to see what you say about help. Is there anything that you would offer at that point? Well, yes. Um, when people float up to my door. That's, I, I don't go and look for them, but that's how it works. So when you, they float up to my door and they say, I've come to see you because I've got this very often they're at a crossroads. The presenting problem is they say, I'm having this terrible trouble, my business is whatever they say. The secret is you sit quietly there and listen. You then share in the muddle with them and you feel as muddled as they are. But I'm sitting quietly with them. And then my own friends up there say, what could help this person is this. Now you don't say a word, but you hold in your mind this vision of what might help. Just hold it, don't say anything. Then if you have a, 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 if you have a sensible rapport, after all they've come to see you, so they are prepared. If you have a, a rapport, they will pick something up of this thing in your mind, not in them, I haven't said anything. And then I say, well, you're in this awful mess and you're at a crossroads. What, what are your thoughts on what you might do? They mumble about it and they say, well, I have vaguely thought that I might uh, publish a, a book about. And then you say, well, that's an interesting vague thought. What would the book would be about? They suddenly tell you in absolute detail what the book's about. So I say, well, that's very interesting. Why haven't you done this? Oh, I couldn't possibly do it. No, no, it's impossible. So they have this, uh, this diffidence gets in the way of their inspiration. And, and I, well, all I do is say, well, let's explore a little bit more about this thing you might possibly do. And as we explore it, I say, well, this could happen or that could happen. I never say this should happen, but they start to say, yes, well, actually, I've, I've got a friend who could help with that. And uh, I did, before you know where you are, we've got a marvelous plan emerges. And I'm very careful. I say, well, we'll get exhausted if we go on too long. Why don't you go away? Just send me one page of A4 of what it is you want to do. And usually they're amazingly clear. So all I do is encourage them to do what they want to do. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but it sounds a very confusing situation. No, no, that's not so, confusing. I really, I really love that um, that wisdom that you shared. That you're not giving people the answers because you're letting them find the answers for themselves. Yeah, exactly. And although you help to facilitate the space to create that sort of fertile ground for them yeah. to have some sort of clarity and space. Um, so you're holding that space for them. 
Yeah, and it's only when it's their idea that they take it on board and say, gosh, yes, I really want to do They They won't respond to somebody else's idea. Anyway, it isn't my idea anyway, so yeah. it is their idea. Yeah, you were just so I, to I call it yeah. an enabling process. Yeah, yeah. Not teaching, mm. enabling. And I, I just do this in everything I do, whether it's business or personal crisis. It's all the same to me. I have no preconceived ideas. Well, it's like talking to you. I've had the faintest idea what we're going to do. <laughs> well, I like that. It reminds me of Eckhart Tolle. I know he lived in Glastonbury for some time as well, but he yeah. would. He, I think he was going out to speak on stage to forty thousand people, and he yeah. said he's walking out, and he says in his mind, he's like, "I've got no idea what I'm going to say now," but when, <laughs> but when he sits down, he'll know what he needs to say. Yeah, and like sometimes, like this is probably like I. I I mentioned I couldn't quite make before there's something came up before we had this interview. So I wasn't able to do much. I normally sit down and do lots of points, but obviously someone somewhere was saying, no, you don't need to make any points, just kind of yeah. go with the flow. And it feels for me, often the times when I'm most stressed in life or out of balance is when I've been overthinking something. I've been thinking too many steps ahead. My yeah. physical mind, the ego has catastrophized some things. Like, let's be honest. You know, going through COVID and the way it's turned the world upside down, when it first kind of came about last March, April time, there was so much uncertainty for people. Everyone was kind of used to, they knew what the daily routine was. But it's been a real blessing as well to have that broken for a lot of us because most of us have just been on the treadmill going in a certain way. And it gave us a break, not just a break in time, but almost like a break in consciousness. But uh, the the big question, uh, how can we usefully make more people aware that there is a way of finding peace in the most appalling situations? Uh, we can help uh, one-to-one, people have come to us a bit, but we have been the people like, like me and people in Glen, we've been talking about this for 50, 60 years, thinking it was on the verge of happening, hasn't happened. So we've now got a catastrophic situation, but still we're pretty hopeless really at, at giving an alternative to people. And I, I find that very frustrating. Yeah. Me too. Hopeless, really. Hopeless, I think. Yeah, it feels like that. You know, if only we knew if we could tap into some of these teachings more and if it could be done on a real big, deep organisational level, even a governmental level. Like, I know, say, for instance, say in Tibet or how that may have been, obviously, before, you know, the rule changed there or other places. It, It feels like... I don't really know the answers, but... It doesn't really feel like the organizations that are in place now around the world, the governments, the... Well, the the problem is that virtually no government would understand what you and I are talking about. They say it's not a bloody nonsense. So they're steeped in this very old-fashioned idea that growth, growth, growth is the only thing for human beings. And that is actually disastrous. But... uh, I think 
it's really important that those of us look at it. Why are we being so hopelessly unsuccessful in spreading this thing we've learned? I mean, it, I, I haven't learned it because somebody's told it to me. It's in my heart. I know it's true, but I cannot share it with more than a tiny handful. You see, another really important lesson on the spiritual path, which I learned, the moment uh, you, we all grow up in uh, this materialistic paradigm, our parents bring us up to be nice, well-educated, well-behaved people who get married to nice, well-behaved people and have nice, well-behaved children, live in a nice house and have a nice car, all this stuff. And when we wake up, for me, we're asked to do something that looks ludicrous to all these nice, respectable people. And you pay a huge price in losing friends, relations, lovers, fathers, mothers. You know, they cannot understand this creature going off and doing. When I went off to Glastonbury to work there, people said, you must be completely bananas, but it's a hopeless bloody place. I said, bananas or not, that's where I'm supposed to be. So what I'm trying to say here, Robert, is that I don't think people are prepared to pay the price of following their true guidance because it'll ask them to do something materially very difficult. Maybe you give up a good job and go and live on much less money. You know, I was penniless, really, when I came to Glastonbury. And uh, miracles have occurred, so I'm no longer penniless. <laughs> yeah. It's often it so, feels like... So that's an important, important thing. There is a price to be paid for the spiritual life. It feels like there's very much like an, an initiation phase. And many initiations really along the path. It's yeah. kind of showing you, are you willing to let go? Are you willing to take the leap of faith? and trust because we're so, so most of it can be conditioned to want to have everything controlled everything set out knowing how much money i've got each month and you know plan for retirement and pensions and you know it's it can become kind of overwhelming but and i can still have that a little bit there's still an element of me like well i still want to feel like i'm okay you know financially because i have a little daughter i know you must have gone through phases you had a family children um and you know you feel like the one to be provided for but then that's the element where you come into well trusting that if you do what you're supposed to do if you follow the guidance and the wisdom you'll always be looked after and that's what you're saying and i was given this very very clear understanding if you go where we want you to go or where we will inspire you to go if you do what we inspire you to do we will always look after you. And I said, well, if you, I am prepared to accept that as a deal and I've done it and it works. But of course, uh, it's logically unprovable. It just sort of happens. So it, it's this extraordinary act of faith, really. And, but I, I think you have to be steeped in your spiritual seeking to be in the place 
where you can be trusted with such a commitment, I think. Yeah. In terms of um, one thing I'm interested to understand more or how, so some people may be on the spiritual path could feel like quite far on um, and they're looking out for signs and stuff and they might see signs or they might have conversations and synchronicities. I've had, I have lots of synchronicities all the time that makes me just have like, wow, you know, how could that, like you said about miracles, like it's like, I'm like to the, to the physical mind, it can feel like it's impossible. How did that, how could that possibly have happened? But for the synchronicity can show doing it. But you say about you are tapped in and you are hearing guidance. Did that just, ha- like you said, it just happened at one point to say where to go, but for those, even for myself, I, I can feel like I can get information, but I don't feel I'm that cl- it's that clear for me just to be completely tapped in hearing it, like maybe you are. Uh, uh, there is a mechanism of doing this. Uh, it's very funny you and I are talking because I'm just redoing my assaulted websites. I'm doing one on access and I realize the concept is very simple, but uh, accessing higher levels of consciousness. First of all, you have to be aware that there are higher levels. Secondly, you have to accept that there's wisdom available at these higher levels. Then you have to devise a simple method of reaching them. I mean, I, I, could, I could tell you what I do, but it's maybe not appropriate. But um, Each one has to find what works for themselves. You need guided visualization. You need to visualize a process whereby you access these higher levels. You actually go there. You are fully present there. And you have to be open to meeting people there. And and you you talk to them. I mean, you're just one-to-one with them. But you have to create for yourself this visual mechanism because it's too difficult for one spirit to talk to a spirit to just floating about in midair because we're incarnate we need to do, actually do something in our minds that's a bit more visual I have to keep saying I think because my wife says you stop going on you have to say I think <laughs> that's interesting for me personally i know that i feel that writing is a is a good technique for me just to sit down with a journal and just be open like i have this thing someone i have a guy called lee havis on my podcast um last year he's a british guy lives over in america and he he channels he brings through a collective called disease um and he would say a good thing to use is to say, to write down on a piece of paper, what does my soul wish to tell me today? And then just wait. And then just wait. And I do that. And sometimes it's really, it's really beautiful and surprising what I then write down. It's my mind is out of the way for a period of time. And it feels really nice as well. You could, that, that is the start, a very good start. I started by writing. But I, I think you'd find if you use voice recognition software and you speak it into your computer, that there's something the flow is more fluid because you're not having to write. And you have to say, 
you ask yourself, whoever you're talking to, you have to say, I'm open to hearing what you have to say and allow it to speak in the second person. Allow it to say, okay, well, I'm your soul. Good morning. Uh, this is what I think you might be doing. So you need to get yourself out of the way and allow whatever it is to speak. Yeah. And something about writing gets in the way a bit. It's the pace, isn't it, as well, and the hand and the movement. One thing I know is um, sometimes when I do, I do solo podcasts as well, or I just talk, and it even happens when I'm doing uh, the interviews as well. But I get, um, when I know that I feel like I'm tapped in, I get like a tingling sensation in the top of my head. And it's like a sign for me that what I'm saying now is just coming through and it's coming through right. Um, now, I'd love to tap into that some more, what some uh, more at times. Um, but yeah, I love that feeling. It's like, it's like as if I'm getting a little bit of a, it's my soul that's just saying, yes, yeah, this is right. Keep going, keep going. This is the right, this is, and it feels, and even I'm getting it a little bit now as well. I'm getting it like it's a feeling of, and it, it, you get like washed over, like with calmness and peace as well. Um, that's right. And, but uh, it's getting the little uh, material being out of the way. Um, I, what I find quite helpful, when, because I'm getting very old, people say, how are you? And they, I know they want me to say I'm fine. But uh, in my mind, I say, well, actually, there are three parts of me. My spiritual self is in cracking form. My intellect is in cracking form. My body is getting pretty derelict. But they don't want to hear that. But I am really aware of that. And what is so vital as you get old is you remain centered in your higher self. And you say, okay, my feet, my body's feet are hurting. <laughs> you can talk to them. I, I find I can control most of my symptoms. And you say, well, body, I, I, you've got a pain in the foot. I'm sorry about that. I've heard your message. You don't have to keep on with that nonsense. Okay, it says, I'll stop. So you must, no, I say you must, I find it, it's a real effort to remain centered in your internal self, which is always wonderful, and not be sucked into the damaged foot or the hurting head. Anyway, I'll stop again. And do you have a do you have a technique that you use that brings you into that centered place? Uh, uh, well, no, it's very simple because I am three different creatures. Uh, I have a higher self that floats around up here somewhere. I have an intellect that lives in my brain. And I have an ever de more decrepit body, which has got served me well, but it has got a heart that's going to stop one day. And, and what, I th what I think of when I'm uh, meditating, I sometimes think of all the multitude of brilliant little cells in my body, each with a life of its own. My liver cell is busy being a beautiful liver cell. It doesn't want to be a heart cell or a kidney cell. It's very happy. It does a beautiful job as a liver cell. And I send prana, you know, the spiritual energy to all my little cells and they all perk up and say, oh, yes, well, we are all right. 
that, but, I like that. Uh, it, it, it's, it's being able to relate to the aspects of the incarnate human being and, and really be fluent with them and happy with them. Yeah. And what's interesting speaking to you, because I understand, you know, you're, you're in your 90s now. And to hear... I'm um, 94 tomorrow. Wow. Well, happy <laughs> birthday for tomorrow. That's incredible. And, you know, I think seeing the life in you, like, to be honest, as soon as we started this conversation, even before I started recording, um, I could see the brightness in you, you know, the light, um, just from a the slightest of um, facial um, movements and stuff. And so anyone who's, you know, watching this or thinking of you're 94, most people when they're 94, you know, they're certainly not going to have all their intellect there, you know, maybe not going to be tapped into the higher self as much, but to, to show that you're a living and breathing example of what going down the spiritual path, which may have been, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago for you or longer, I'm not sure. Um, I started when I was 40, really. So that's 54 years ago. And another little thing, which it might be helpful. My friends up there say, look, there's work we want you to do, the work you're doing for us, which is great. We will keep you going as long as you're useful. And when you are no longer able to do it, off you go. So that's fine by me. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm really, uh, I have to keep saying I believe, of course I believe, it, but I do believe that if you honour your calling and serve your own higher self's guidance, which is listening to others, you are actually looked after. You know, your health is okay and your mind's okay. And when you are just too decrepit to go on, it's time to die. So you have no um, no fear of death anymore? Absolutely none. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a nice experience. But I've got things I want to do here still. So yeah. I've got people I love and around me. I've got a family and, you know. Yeah. It must be. I imagine as well, you've, have you got grandchildren now and great-grandchildren? Well, or? funny enough, no, I have three very dynamic sons. And I have uh, sort of step daughters but i don't have any blood grandchildren which is very strange mm. there you are i was just uh, mentioning it because i'd imagine that if you did have them around that the the knowledge and the wisdom that you'll be passing on to um those younger generations but you'd pass it on to me now anyway and many others as well well um we, we... One can't sort of consciously pass it on. All one, all one can do is respond to the person. And so I'm responding to you and you're making me talk a lot, which is <laughs> because you're touching on things I love. Full marks to you. One thing that I wanted to mention to you was, because your title of your books are Pilgrim and Glastonbury, is actually just to talk about pilgrimage and... Um, the journey that people go on um, and like for instance even okay me jumping in a car and going to Glastonbury is a, a form of pilgrimage but I know that our Airbnb, Airbnb host was speaking about they were going to do the um, Santiago the um, yeah. 
I can't remember the full term of it, the one in Spain where you go and, you know. No, no all these places, Santiago de Compostela. That's the one. And, you know, whether you go into Rome or you go into the Canterbury Abbey or wherever, you know, or to Glastonbury. Can you just touch on a pilgrimage and the importance of it? And, yeah, it'd be nice to hear. Well, the, the pilgrimage is about the journey, really. The, the journey to Santiago de Compostela, it's the journey that is important, the learning of the journey, of the overnight stops, the people that are met. And it's interesting, Santiago is perhaps the most firmly and well-established pilgrimage pattern today. And when you get to uh, Santiago, there is a pilgrim reception committee. It has a heap of crutches beside the door. The pilgrims who arrived on crutches were healed and didn't need their crutches anymore. But there's a very simple ceremony, uh, which is the completion of the journey. So you go into the great cathedral there is a big statue to St. James, Santiago, and you walk up behind the statue and you kiss the sand, statue of Santiago. You go down into the cathedral, you say a prayer, the pilgrimage is complete. So, and what I like is that, the, and there are stopping places on the way where you stop the night. They have the thing organized so that people are, their spiritual pilgrimage has a physical reality which helps to sort of ground it. And we are struggling towards that in Glastonbury, but we don't have the established route, although it's starting to happen. We don't have a recognized way of completing the pilgrimage, although various people are doing things. So, the next stage of Glastonbury's development is to become a more, people need to be able to recognize that there is a pattern, that the spiritual life is their own, but there's something about there being a material pattern that helps the spiritual to flourish. Um, so how is that evolving then in Glastonbury? Because, you know, you'll say the one in Spain, it's quite a clear route that people will go yeah. on. Is there a route that people would start and then end at Glastonbury? Or is it basically just from wherever they yeah, are? They are quite, uh, the Glaston Centre Limited is working with a number of people who are into pilgrimage in the UK, trying to establish something a bit more recognised as the way here. They already, there's a thing called the Pilgrimage Way, which has just been set up, which shows people passage, you know, walks around Glastonbury with uh, staging places and places to sit. But, and they are working on how do we get something a little bit formalized about getting here. Um, Ideally, the pilgrimage is best done on foot. And so immediately you come to the need for staging places because people don't really want to walk more, more than 10 miles a day, sort of. 120 miles to London, 12 staging places. So 
none of this exists at the moment because we all drive around in cars. But I, I'm, I'm quite certain it will emerge in the next 20, 30 years, it will emerge and we'll know how to, maybe this crisis of having to drive cars less, having electric cars with very short range, maybe we will go back to having, um, you know, in the late middle ages, we had post houses, we had, uh, we had, um, hotels which were one horses, you know, a coaches ride apart. Well, maybe we will start to see real pilgrimage centers growing up, which are one day's walk apart. And if we hold this with absolute clarity, it will happen for sure. But it isn't there yet. Yeah, for sure. I um yeah something like that would um and as the world's unfolding at the moment yeah it could very well be that people just choose not to drive as much and yeah I think so um, and I think people will, will actually start to think about walking more yeah and yeah. and and immediately they start about walking more immediately will spring up the need for B and Bs or hostelries or something which is your destination. So you start out from London and you aim to go to Windsor. I don't know where you aim to go, but there's somewhere which is like the stages of Santiago, which is the Glastonburger Hostel. <laughs> and there are eight of them or 10 of them on the way from London to Glastonbury. And they're all thriving because they're full of people on the journey. Yeah, for sure. You'd imagine a lot of people, like, for instance, as you're saying about um, this one well, in Spain, like people come from all over the world. And I understand they maybe, uh, is it Paolo Carrera who wrote those books, The Pilgrimage and yeah. a few other ones? He made them pretty um, prominent. Um, so I think people, like, as a starting point from London would be uh, an excellent route because there'd be so many people. Well, the Canterbury Tales, early Middle Ages, uh, is all about the pilgrimage and the journey on the way and what was learned on the journey. And I, I think uh, the present chaos may be a fertile ground for more walking. Yeah, I agree. Even, even that first lockdown, we, we would walk quite regularly. Um, but then when things kind of really closed down last March, April time, the amount of people that we saw out walking because that's all you could really do. Um, and, and we're still seeing those pe more people out now. So yeah, it just takes sometimes uncomfortable circumstances to bring out different things, necessary things. Yes, it, it's, um, you have to publicize the idea and have the infrastructure so that it works. And, and humanity always responds. So once the idea is there, people are saying, I want to walk to Glastonbury, where can I stop? And they start to publicize it. And somebody says, well, I'm, you could stop at my house. So I've got, you know, before you know where you are, the whole thing is working. So this is, we have the one priceless gift at the moment. We can communicate without physically being present. Uh, the telephone worked quite well, but now we can actually talk to each other. And that, that is the vehicle 
for the next stage. I think eventually we, we won't need this. We'll talk to each other without a computer, but this is the next stage of how we move forward. The last thing to say is um, I noticed when I was reading the book, uh, one, th one of the places I enjoy the most when I'm in Glastonbury is to go to the chalice well. I always find that it brings the most peace and tranquility to me when I'm in Glastonbury. Um, and you mentioned about the watches of the well as a spirit being very, um, goes far deeper and far farther back in time than say what might be the presence in the Abbey. If you could just share a little bit about that, would be great. Yes. Um, Chalice Well is very interesting because it has, the, the well has been there forever, really. Well, not forever, but anyway, for hundreds of years. And it has watchers and guardians around. And if you sit by the well when it's quiet, you can feel these huge presences. The, uh, at the same time, the well has inspired people, inspired Christian people to build it, to build the upper room, which has had a very strong Christian orientation. And that produces a, a slight conflict of energy because the Christian energy, perfectly valid, but it's different to the energy of the watchers of the well. And there's a, a struggle in, in Chalice Well. It, it's always been beautifully run. There's a constant challenge between the the guardians, the uh, trustees, and the people who actually have to work there. Uh, um, it's always solved. It never comes to blows, but there's a constant sort of difference. The people actually working there often feel slightly different in their relationship to the well, to those who are the trustees. So, um, and the well is just as a, an example. Wherever you look in any spiritual place, you have a slight conflict between what the sacred place needs and what the current human society has imposed upon it. Not always the same thing. So in Lourdes or Santiago, in all these places, one can feel this tension, this conflict going on. It's almost as if the spirit of the, it, it's Glastonbury. Glastonbury is after all the, the spirit of Glastonbury, not in perfect tune with everybody here. So uh, we mentioned Chalice Well, but that, that's simply an example of a very holy place trying to make itself available to contemporary society. And it's not easy. Not easy because the, the voice of the holy place, which is absolutely clear, may not fit in comfortably with current beliefs. I mean, that's how I, I, I sense it. Yeah. So you have a powerhouse of spiritual energy with people attracted to it, trying to interpret it in their own way, 
which it tends to come from what is currently, the, even if, you're, if it's Christianity, would you tend to look upon it as a Christian world? It's not. It's a sacred world. If you were a Muslim, you would tend to think of it as an Islamic world. It's not. So whatever you are, you're a bit inclined to impose on the energy of this sacred place, your ideas. Yeah, indeed. It's really nice to hear that. And it's really nice. It's been really nice to speak to you. Um, like I feel like uh, I love these type of conversations where I get so they kind of nourish me as well and um, make me feel quite, yeah, nourished and alive for, um, sometimes we need a bit of a boost. We need, um, we need like charging up at times. And I often find that these conversations do that for me and hopefully it does it for the listeners as well. Well, I've, um, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been, I, I, I love the synchronicity that brought me to have this, you know, chat with you today, how it kind of unfolded. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. No, thank you. There's a, another uh, interview uh, wrapped up this time with um, Barry Taylor, who I first came across from a book that I found in Glastonbury uh, called A Pilgrim in Glastonbury. Um, and I found that a really rich and inspiring conversation, um, an opportunity to speak with someone who um, is many years ahead of me in terms of this physical life, but someone who can pass on that um, wisdom and insight, like he says, not necessarily wisdom, he's just there to hold space and potentially offer some guidance along the way. So, um, yeah, um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, um, someone you might think who might be open to this information or might be a friend who's completely tuned into the spiritual realms of life and the world and so forth. Um, yeah, if you want to uh, support this podcast, you can on my Patreon page for Little as Bicycle Coffee each month. That would help me to continue to, to have these conversations and share them and um yeah please share it with a friend you can subscribe on youtube you know all the kind of you know all the podcast channels well i really appreciate you listening and tuning today and until next time have a good one